Before we begin, don't forget that if you want to hear this episode ad-free, then sign up to our members channel. Just search for What's the Story Crime in Apple Podcasts or follow the link in our show notes. Members will get exclusive access to all episodes of Smoking Gun, completely ad-free, before anyone else. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's the early 1990s, and we're in a beautiful part of South Wales, the Rhonda Valley, Surrounded by greenery, small industrial mining towns all tucked away between the hills. Today, there's a car boot sale. Locals have driven here, their vehicles loaded with bric-a-brac and things they no longer need, hoping to make a sale. And even as they unload their goods, the first customers crowd around, hoping to catch sight of a hidden gem. A diamond amongst the rough. There's all sorts for sale. Old furniture children's toys which are now too small for their once devoted owners, picture frames, books and ornaments. On one stall there sits a small ceramic frog. It's green, not particularly large. It would fit in the palm of your hand, but it's heavy, about two pounds in weight. It's a simple design of a frog stood on a lily pad. It would make an excellent paperweight. Perhaps it could stand beside a garden pond. Hopefully, the owner wonders if there's a frog fanatic in the hunt for a new purchase. But what the owner doesn't know, in fact, nobody knows, is that the ceramic frog will one day be the smoking gun that proves a murder. A murder which hasn't happened yet. And one which will take nearly two decades to be solved. My name is Romola Gary, and I'm an actress who's always been fascinated by how criminal cases are solved, the amazing processes that go on behind the scenes, and the clues that clinch the case. And my name is Tracy Alexander. I'm the president of the British Academy of Forensic Sciences. I've spent years inside these processes, searching for those clues. I've dedicated my career to using science to help the course of justice. And my work has ensured that hundreds of criminals have gone to prison and the wrongly accused go free. Together, we're going to lift the lid on some of the most extraordinary cases from around the world. We'll discover how, with the help of science, everyday items have become the key to catching a killer. From What's the Story Sounds, this is Smoking Gun, Series 2, Episode 15. The Ornamental Frog Lee Sabine was one of life's eccentrics. She'd always been that way, 
Her mannerisms, her behaviour, her life, it was far from ordinary. If you consulted her CV, it would say she was a former cabaret singer, a tarot card reader, an amateur gardener. At one point, she was heavily involved with competing show dogs. She was born in Australia, married a millionaire, and fled a violent relationship. As a life lived, she'd lived it to the max. In fact, being a showman was all part of Lee Sabine's enigma. She loved to tell stories, spin yarns, hold court and keep people's attention. And with the life that she had lived, there were plenty of yarns to spin. Lee had actually been born in the UK, but her upbringing was tough. Perhaps it was these formative challenges which prompted her to paint a different version when she told others about her early years. At the age of five, and with a two-year-old sibling, Lee's mother walked out on her children. For the rest of her childhood, Lee would move between extended family, foster homes and an orphanage. It was the kind of troubled upbringing which would provide lifelong memories, scars, but nevertheless... Lee emerged from the other side, ready to tackle adulthood. She met her husband, John, while treating him for injuries he'd sustained in the Korean War in the 1950s. Lee was just 17, John older, already married, and with two children of his own. But battle scars had brought them together, and Lee would soon arrive confidently into John's family home, pregnant, and reveal to John's wife the extent of his secret relationship. John was promptly kicked out, and he and Lee moved in together, having their first child in 1959, marrying in 1960, and having three more children before 1965. They lived all over the UK, in Kent, Wales, and then emigrated overseas to live in New Zealand. Life down under was, it seemed, a good place for them, and a fifth child arrived. They had what might seem the perfect home life. There, well, Lee's eccentricities began to become apparent. In fact, these weren't just eccentricities, but abusive and unpleasant qualities. The children would later allege that their parents were very often absent. They weren't the doting couple that they perhaps wanted to portray. And their son even labelled Lee as an evil person who would abuse the children whenever she saw fit. Social services stepped in, not because of the reports of abuse or concern from neighbours, but in fact because the Sabines had simply abandoned their children and left. They dropped them off at a nursery one morning and promised to pick them up later, and simply never returned. In reality, the Sabines were under investigation. John's career as an accountant had seen him acquire some money he ought not to have had, and he and Lee decided to move quickly before the law could catch up. The story of five abandoned children didn't make the press in order to protect the kids. The priority was their welfare. But the authorities were keen to catch up with Lee and John Sabine and hold them to account. But while they may have been looking in New Zealand, the Sabines had gone further afield, to Australia. Lee saw this new beginning as a chance to launch her musical career. She would later tell stories of working as a cabaret singer, wowing audiences with her strong voice 
and commanding stage presence. She also read tarot cards, claiming to be skilled in the art of seeing into the future, a skill which, if she did possess, could have enlightened her to the events that would follow. Later, their child-abandoning exploits did hit the press, and Lee gave an interview claiming that they'd fled to Australia in the pursuit of money. But their dreams had turned to a nightmare, and they couldn't afford the airfare home. In 1985, they did briefly return to New Zealand and reunited with their children. Emotions were high. There was anger, bitterness. Many onlookers suggested the children, who were now mostly fully grown up, should want nothing to do with their parents. But they felt otherwise. Having longed for a mother and father all of their childhoods, they simply had to explore what would happen next. In fact, their hopes were short-lived, and only months after returning to their children's lives, the Sabines were off once again. This coming and going and sense of being abandoned had a huge impact on the Sabines' children. One, a son called Mark, tragically took his own life after years of battling with the impact of his parents' actions. Another son, Steve, spoke candidly of the upset and trauma their behaviour had caused. Authorities did intervene. John was arrested over the accountancy fraud and alleged theft, and both parents were quizzed about the treatment and abandonment of their children. But whatever punishment was handed out, it was kept quiet and had only a temporary impact. By the early 90s, the couple had moved to Reading, a town to the west of London. Lee got a job working in a department store and then lost it, sacked for being too friendly with customers, refusing to change her ways after being asked not to call her customers babe. Her bosses simply said she was eccentric, perhaps a little too eccentric. By 1997, the Sabines, now entering the later stages of life, moved to Bedow, a small valley town in South Wales near Prontypreeth. And their past life in New Zealand was very much kept in the dark when they got chatting to their new neighbours. The Sabines made friends. Lee enjoyed tending to the communal garden outside their home. But they created something of an enigma, not giving much away. The internet was young. Even if the Sabines had opened up about their past, it was unlikely that many of their new community could have gone online and researched the facts. But regardless, the Sabines felt it safer to share little. John, by this point, was 67 years old. He registered at the local doctors, became a regular fixture walking along the local high street. But those excursions aside, he kept himself to himself. It was Lee, after all, who enjoyed attention. So when John wasn't seen on the high street or at the doctor's, well, it didn't create much of a stir. There was nobody to raise any alarm, if any alarm needed to be raised. Nobody apart from Lee, and Lee didn't report anything. John Sabine was missing, but nobody knew it. There was no missing persons report. John Sabine remained on the electoral roll. His pension payments kept arriving in his bank account. Nothing changed, except that John was never seen by anyone. Aside from the outward absence of John, 
Lee's life continued at full throttle. She was a buzz of energy and renowned for her tall tales and exaggerated stories. She'd regularly visit the local hair salon. She'd chat to friends over the garden wall at the shops and have regular chats on the phone. People liked her, even if they didn't always believe what she said. Nothing exemplified this more than when Lee enjoyed a phone conversation with her friend Valerie Chalky. The pair didn't often speak, so this conversation was a chance to catch up with life. How's John? Valerie asked. I'm surprised you've not killed each other by now. Valerie was joking, of course. As a friend, she knew the squabbles and fallouts which the Sabines sometimes endured, just like any couple. And Lee played along. Well, it's funny you should say that. I killed him. I hit him on the head with that frog which I kept by the bed. He was driving me mad. Kept getting into bed saying, you don't fancy me anymore. Valerie laughed. Of course, that's what Lee would say. The story would become a running joke. Lee occasionally offering up, careful what you say or I'll frog you. And the pair would chuckle at the absurdity of it all. But as the months turned into years, the old friendships faded. And Lee's new friends, well, many of them knew her as a single woman. John hadn't been on the scene for years. Some friends simply knew of him as an ex-husband. Others assumed he'd passed away. Most didn't care enough to ask. Lee was a strong, independent woman who they enjoyed talking to, and her business was exactly that. So when Lee began a relationship with a local man, no eyebrows were raised. Derek was younger, in his mid-fifties, a former fireman and he was taken with Lee and her eccentric ways. The pair had a feisty, sometimes volatile relationship. Some described it as on and off. But at times, Derek would live in the flat that Lee had once shared with John. Throughout their relationship, Derek's daughters were told they weren't welcome. They were made to feel excluded. Lee had taken charge, and they were forced to watch on from a distance. But Lee later told neighbours she was fed up with Derek and rumours began to spread, started by Lee, about her partner. She booted him out. Months later, and struggling with the rumours that Lee had spread, Derek became unwell and passed away at just 59 years of age. His daughters would later tell the press that Lee Sabine had blood on her hands and had behaved appallingly in her treatment of Derek. But again, the public perception of Lee Sabine was a more rounded, positive one. She was featured in an extensive article in RCT Home magazine. In it, she spoke proudly about her mission to transform the communal garden at the back of her property into a small piece of paradise. She spoke about her love for the outdoors, a passion that came from her upbringing in New Zealand, she explained, and her deep affection with a friendly and welcoming community of South Wales. The only fault she could find was the lack of love for the communal garden, which she described as neglected. So Lee had set to work, digging, planting, tending and cultivating. And the results had caught the attention of the magazine. Every year, she invited all the neighbours to share a barbecue on the beautifully tended garden lawn. Lee Sabine had, it seemed, found a way to win favour, make friends 
and enjoy her hobby. And of course, she made sure she got plenty of attention as a result. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Lee was the talk of the town. And if locals didn't already know her, they soon would. Conversations in the hairdressers lasted longer and Lee reveled in the limelight. The stories she told became even more elaborate and strange. In one, the topic of funeral costs came up. Oh, I couldn't afford them when my husband died. He didn't even get a burial. The fellow customers in the salon laughed. Typical of Lee to come out with something like that. So when, just a few years later, Lee was diagnosed with brain cancer, her friends and neighbours were devastated. She was so full of life, so warm, she had to beat this. Friends rallied round, offering her lifts to the hospital, transport to get her out and about, even just an ear and someone to call in regularly and make sure she was okay. Trips out became a treat rather than the norm, but Lee was determined not to let her health stop her living life. As the prognosis worsened, she began to sort out her affairs and instructed neighbours to clear her property with a list of what to keep and to throw away. There was a will, with a handful of semi-valuable items destined for friends. After all, there was no family around to take them. The rest of the items were worthless and should be sent to the tip. That included her sofas, clothing and even a medical skeleton which Lee kept in the flat wrapped up in green bags nobody would want these things they should just be got rid of within weeks after being admitted to a hospice Lee Sabine passed away her friends said an emotional goodbye with a small local funeral to which only a couple of distant cousins represented her family the eccentric Lee Sabine was no longer a part of the community. But she wouldn't be forgotten. It was two weeks later that a phone call came in to 999. A body had been found in a garden in Bedow, and police officers needed to attend immediately. Officers from South Wales Police were directed to the scene, and they didn't really know what to expect. Reports of a body being found would usually be for a recent sudden death, or a mistaken report, animal bones misidentified as human ones. So the response was urgent, but not panicked. But when those first officers arrived at the address, it was clear these weren't animal bones, and this wasn't a recent sudden death. Instead, it was something much, much darker. The person who'd called 999 was Michelle, a friend of Anne's. She quickly directed officers to the discovery, a large mannequin wrapped in green tape. A mannequin which wasn't actually a mannequin at all. Michelle explained that she thought the package was a medical skeleton, 
and before it was collected by the bin men, she'd wanted to use it to play a prank on her partner. But as she cut through the green tape wrapping it, she'd reached human flesh, and horrified, she'd called the cops. The officers didn't know what to make of the story, or what to make of the scene, but Michelle was placed under arrest while they could figure those things out. The garden was a communal one, with a shed and flower beds around the edge, and a medium-sized wall offering some privacy from the adjacent main road. Police began to wonder if the body had been dumped over the wall, perhaps by a criminal gang. But that didn't make much sense. They wondered if Michelle was responsible. After all, she had found the body and called it in. But her shock at the find seemed credible. Owners of the flats around the garden were all questioned, and a theory began to emerge. Everyone said the same thing, that the skeleton had belonged to a former resident, Lee Sabine, and had been dumped outside as a part of the emptying of her property. But nobody had any idea who the body might be, or why it was there. Forensic officers sealed off the garden. They knew that within it and around the rubbish bins where the body had been found, there would be clues which would help explain what was going on. The body itself was loaded carefully into a private ambulance, still coated almost entirely in the plastic tape, and it was sent for a detailed post-mortem. Unusually, the process of tests would need to establish not just how the person had died, but who the body was. Scientists carefully cut through the wrapping and found 41 layers of plastic had been used. Bin bags, plastic bags and even bits of foil were in amongst the wrapping, which was tightly packed together. Beneath these layers, the body was almost perfectly preserved, still wearing a pair of blue-striped Marks and Spencer's pyjamas but there was no name written into the label. They could tell he was male, elder, perhaps in his 60s or 70s, but that was it. The pathologists then set to work, looking for evidence of how the man had died, and in the course of their work, they found skull fractures consistent with someone being assaulted and dying from these injuries. There was a dent in the victim's skull, and fractures emerging from it. It seemed the man had fallen and hit his head, or been struck with a blunt object. Forensic officers were tasked with testing the layers of tape around the body. Did any of the bits of paper or plastic have anything written on them? Could they help identify when they'd been placed around the body? There had to be a clue somewhere. In fact, what they learned was that the wrapping had been added to over a period of years getting tighter and tighter. And the result had created a form of chemical mummification, which had almost perfectly preserved the body. Some of the layers dated back to the 1990s, and coupled with the pyjamas worn by the victim, police concluded that the body may have been dead for up to 20 years. DNA swabs were taken, but to get a match, well, that would take time. Meanwhile, detectives began poking around the life of Lee Sabine, the former resident 
who neighbours claimed had once owned the medical skeleton. And they learned about her former husband. It couldn't be. Could it? They found out that up until Lee's death, money owed to John from pension pots was still being paid into her account. And they found out that John hadn't been seen at the local doctors since 1997. Neighbours, too, expressed no knowledge of John, and those who had heard of him said he'd been away for years. But their stories differed. Some had heard he'd moved back to New Zealand. Others believed he'd died. Then, of course, there was the story of how Lee hadn't been able to bury her husband because of the high funeral costs. Details were starting to come together to paint a very ugly picture. The DNA samples came back a few weeks after the discovery of the body and confirmed that the body was that of John Sabine. And there was shock in the community at the news, but also bafflement. Had Lee kept her husband's death a secret for all those years? And had she really kept his body in her tiny flat all that time? By now, the forensic case was pulling details thick and fast. Neighbour and friend Michelle was officially ruled out of the inquiry. She really was just the unfortunate person who'd stumbled upon the horrifying find in the garden. John and Lee's children were tracked down in New Zealand and given the news that their estranged father had been found deceased and their estranged mother was the prime suspect in preventing his burial. But the police were still considering whether Lee might also have been responsible for his death. And they put a call out asking any member of the public who may have known the Sabines to get in touch. Amongst the many callers was Violet, the friend of Lee who recalled that strange conversation where Lee had claimed she'd killed her husband with a frog. It's probably not relevant, she told officers, but it did stick in my mind. The officers who received the information raised an eyebrow. Could Lee have confessed to killing all those years ago and just not have been believed? To prove the case, officers would need the ornamental frog. And so they retrieved the list of possessions which Lee had ordered to be sent to the tip or shared amongst her friends. On that list, an ornamental frog was destined to be given to one of Lee's friends in the town. Quickly, officers scampered to see if it had indeed been gifted, and to their delight, the new owner admitted that they had the frog at home and the officers were welcome to take a look. There, inside the house, was a small ornamental frog on the mantelpiece, positioned sitting on a lily pad, with large eyes the most prominent feature. Officers seized the frog and, much to the surprise of the new owners, removed it in a forensic evidence bag suggesting they believed it may be a murder weapon. Back at the forensics lab, the frog was assessed. Fingerprints wouldn't be useful, as the officers knew that it had belonged to Lee Sabine, and there was no sign of blood on the item either. But when the frog was compared to the injury sustained to the skull of John Sabine, there was an extraordinary realisation... The wound and the shape of the frog matched exactly with the protruding eye of the frog, the right size for the dent in John's skull, and other fractures and breaks matching the shape. 
it was clear that John had been killed from a single blow to the head from the weighty frog ornament. Lee Sabine then covered up her crime, wrapping his body with pieces of plastic and stored it in a back room at her property. Life for her had then carried on as normal, and if anyone asked, she just fobbed off their questions. When the body began to smell, she simply added more plastic wrapping, and for 18 years she continued this deception. When Lee knew her days were numbered, she surely assumed her secret would stay hidden. All she needed was the medical skeleton to be removed and taken to the rubbish dump, and she almost got her wish. The case against Lee Sabine didn't need to go to court. She was already deceased. But proving what had happened was still important, if only to give the Sabine's children some answers. And so a coroner's inquest was held. It ruled that John Sabine had been unlawfully killed with a blow to the head. The only suspect was Lee Sabine. In the final chapter of this story, John Sabine was given a proper burial on January the 19th, 2016, at a cemetery not far from his home in Wales. There were few mourners, but those who did attend could be thankful that 18 years after his death, John Sabine could at last rest in peace. Smoking Gun is a What's the Story original podcast series. It's narrated by me, Romola Gary. And by me, Tracy Alexander. The series is supported by the British Academy of Forensic Sciences. Their work supports the international fight to improve forensic techniques, to share ideas and develop the crime-solving scientific advances of the future. If you've enjoyed this episode, please give it a rating and review and help spread the word. You can listen to a new episode of Smoking Gun every week, wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to listen to all episodes right now, you can find them completely ad-free on our subscription channel, What's the Story Crime. On there, you'll also get exclusive access to a whole bunch of bonus interviews led by me, where I speak to some of the most experienced and skilled forensic scientists from around the world and find out more about what they do. Those interviews are only available on What's the Story Crime. There's also a whole range of brilliant true crime content all made by the same team. You can check out The Missing, with more than 60 episodes all about long-term missing people, which invites you to try and help solve the case. You'll also find exclusive series like Jigsaw, true crime investigations like 900 Degrees, and incredible stories told over several parts. Whatever you're into, if you enjoy listening to Smoking Gun, we're sure you'll find your next must-listen podcast on What's the Story Crime. Signing up is really easy. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, just search for What's the Story Crime, subscribe, and you'll get all your favourite shows ad-free. For listeners on Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, or any other platform, all you need to do is click the link in our show notes or visit www.whatsthestorysounds.com forward slash 
crime. Your subscription helps to ensure we can keep making more of the content you love. And it costs just 3 99 per month. 